Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee plus get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hey clever friends if you'll be in new york city this month for design week i want you to come to the emerging designer showcase it's at the javits center during icff on the main stage sunday may 19th at 4 p.m Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at ICFF.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. We all have that ability to take action and be involved in our community in some way. You get to define or decide what that will look like for you, but don't think that, oh, because you're not marching in the street, that that's the only way you could be an activist. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. And today I'm talking to Melanie Barnett. Melanie is an artist, activist, speaker, and legacy maker. She works in one-of-a-kind ceramic sculptures and bespoke textiles, and is an authority on the cultural traditions and practices of art in the African diaspora, and how it translates into her vision of the modern Black experience. She is also the founder of the Black Artists and Designers Guild, a global platform and curated collective of independent Black artists, makers, and designers. And on the board of SURF, an organization that provides emergency loans to artisans and craftspeople during natural disasters. A passionate connector and expert ambassador, her mission is to use art as a tool to create community impact and open doors for the next generation of Black artists and expand the conversation around marginalization in the arts and create greater opportunities for inclusion. As you will hear, she is a true powerhouse and total delight. Here's Mulaney. My name is Mulaney Barnett. I am based in Brooklyn, New York. 
I'm an artist, I'm an activist, speaker, and legacy maker. My art and design practice focuses on textiles and clay, and I create one-of-a-kind sculptures with the clay and bespoke carpets and textiles. That That's all? That's all you do? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I figured we'd have a more in-depth conversation, so I'll save all the goodies for later. Well, that is going to be later because I always like to start at the very beginning, like young, young Mulaney. Will you paint the picture of your childhood for me? I love to know if you did you grow up in Brooklyn? What was your family dynamic and what kinds of things like captured your imagination as a child? Sure. Actually, I was born in the Bronx, but I grew up in Norwalk, Connecticut by the beach. Mm. And yeah, my parents are both from the Caribbean. I was so I'm first generation born in the U.S. And my mother, she's from St. Vincent and my father's from Jamaica. I'm the second of three girls. And as they told me when I was born, they didn't want to raise their children in the city. And my father at the time had a friend in Norwalk, Connecticut, and they eventually bought a house there. My parents, they divorced when I was young. Uh, I was about five years old. And so my mother, uh, you know, of course, took on the task to raise us. My father was still in the picture, but he wasn't as active. He moved to another um, town lo- nearby, which is in Mil- Milford, Connecticut. So we would see him on the weekends. But my childhood, I had a fun childhood. Um, my mother, she was an educator. Um, she really believed and she had two things to do for her girls because there were three of us now. She needed to educate us. And she needed to feed us. Like, those are her priorities. Everything else, you know, she figured as long as she gave us that, we would be able to become responsible women. And that was her goal. And so when I was like eight years old, you know, when you're a child, you're always involved in like, you know, you get the art supplies, whether it's crayons, paint, and, you know, you you explore. Mm-hmm. But my teacher saw something in me at that young age, and I was selected to be a part of an artistically talented program where we would draw and paint on a weekly basis. So in addition to the regular art class, I got this extra time. I do remember even back then how I was loved drawing people and I loved drawing, you know, objects. And I also remember the challenges, not knowing at the time that this was one of the parameters around drawing people. I'll give you an example. I was actually doing a portrait of my my cousin who was living with us at the time. And my teacher would only allow us to mix skin tones that were resemblant of white people. What? Yes. I could not mix past that tone. Now, as a black woman, my cousin was black too and much darker skin tone than me. And I knew this because I had a picture, you know, (laughs) We, we had pictures for our reference. And so then... That picture is actually hanging in my mother's home. And, you know, again, the skin tone is would match a, a skin tone of a white person. And then I would paint my friends. I couldn't paint myself or anything because that wasn't an option. So it wasn't until I got to high school when I decided to really focus on fine art. Because to be honest, Amy, prior to that, one of the things my mother always uh, exposed us to were the arts. And so she was a classical pianist when she came to the U.S. And so she made sure that all of her daughters knew how to play the piano and the violin. And I actually stayed with both instruments for a long time to the point where I wasn't even able to do fine art. But when I got into 10th grade, I said, you know what, 
I said, mommy, I don't want to play the violin anymore. I want to go back to drawing and painting. And so from there, I took over um, who I was going to paint, how I was going to paint. And I focused specifically on drawing self-portraits. So I wouldn't have any deflection on what colors I could create and mixing colors. And I knew by drawing myself, there wouldn't be a lack of representation of myself and my community. I'm I'm feeling your frustration that you grew up with an art background. I mean, how, how fortunate to be able to study art from eight years old. And yet, yeah. how discriminatory to put rules on what skin tones you can mix. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I look back at those paintings and I, I look at, I'm like, all of them during that period were, you know, various white female friends of mine, you know, Mm -hmm. which was fine. But the point is that I wasn't able to do anything else. And at that age, you know, you don't question it because you're not even sure what that was about. It wasn't until I got older that I really was able to dissect and understand that experience which also led me to really taking a deeper dive into who I am. Um, During my last year of high school, Amy, I got a a cultural awakening. Mm. And it started with um, reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, which was a push from my sister, my younger sister. And this was the 90s, 89, 90s, you know. Mm -hmm. Music, especially hip hop, was was a huge influence on bringing awareness to Black culture and people. And I didn't have the connection because I didn't know um, as much as I do now. And it was that autobiography of Malcolm X that opened my eyes. And then from there, I just had this awakening and I started to read a lot more and, and taking a deeper dive into connecting my experience and my heritage to the continent of Africa, not necessarily connecting specifically to a country because I understand our history, but looking at the, the similarities and how um, Black people have continued to carry on with traditions, despite of all of the discrimination and racist system that we're in, that we still have been able to thrive. So then I used, I started to take a deeper dive when I went to college at SUNY Purchase. It was the first time I was able to study Black artists. I had an African-American art history class, and that was like my favorite class I I made sure I did not miss that class. Plus, Amy, I was one of those students where I didn't like to miss a day of school. Okay, okay. I know that kind. (laughs) I was one of those. I mean, to the point, my mother was graduating with her doctorate Mm -hmm. at Columbia University. And she said, Melanie, you have to miss school to come to the graduation. (laughs) I was so upset. (laughs) It's two fierce educators battling each other. (laughs) I mean, I'll never forget that day. I sat there just soaking. And now I look back, I'm like, oh, my goodness. But yeah, I I was the perfect attendance student. Like, I thrived on that. So this cultural awakening and this being able to study African art, I know there's points in our adulthood when we sort of have to unpack the experiences of our childhood and we have to reconcile with them. I mean, did you have some anger you had to process about the world as you started to see it in in more dimensions? Yeah, initially I was extremely upset, extremely mad, you know, that this information hadn't been shared. Yeah. I mean, I went through 12 years of school and not even being able to celebrate Black people, period. 
when we were celebrated, it was in such small pockets that it was the same people over and over. We know Dr. King, you know, mm-hmm. the, you know, it was the same figures celebrated over and over. But it wasn't until I actually left high school and got into college and even college only provided a small window. I had to go and do the research on my own by connecting with organizations that were outside of school that would help to provide the information. You know, I'll never forget during my, because I stayed at SUNY Purchase, Amy, for two years, okay? And I studied painting and photography. I really wanted to, hey, it was the 90s. There was no social media, no internet. And I wanted to make money as an artist. And I thought, you know, I need to go into more of a commercial route. So I transferred to FIT the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. I know it well. I went there myself. Okay. Hey, alumni. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and so I studied fashion illustration first. Believe me, I love drawing people and figures, but I didn't feel that that was going to be the career for me for many reasons. I wasn't the best. And the industry was dying when it came to fashion illustration. But it was because of that experience, I was able to walk the halls of the school and I discovered textile design. Mm. So yeah, the industry was dying because it was it was slowly giving way to digital technology. That's right. Photography was taking over. But I could also see just because I, I had attended FIT a couple years before that. I, I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's a great school, but the fashion yeah. industry itself would have been I don't know. It seems like a bit too narrow for what mm-hmm. you have grown into expressing yourself. So yes, yes, <laughs> very much so, very much so. I mean, you know, it, but you know, you don't know what you don't know, right? At right? That right? Time, right? Totally. But you found right. textile design. I took a textile science class there, and I was like, "This is fascinating." I had no idea yeah. this is how polymer threads were made, and you know, jersey knits and and stuff. It was really cool, but. And expensive, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Very much so. And to your point, that's what textile surface design allowed me to design for multiple surfaces, paper products, bedding, wallpaper, dinnerware, fabric, you know, rugs. And that's how I discovered rugs. Rug design. Mm -hmm. Never knew about it before. And your illustration, your painting and your drawing and all of that gets folded in, weaved in, if you'll pardon the pun, literally, yeah. <laughs> into your rug design. Yeah, exactly. It was from that point in textile design where I was really taking a deep dive into my cultural journey. So I made sure every project that I had focused on something from the Black experience. And if you told me it was a flower project, a floral, and by the way, Amy, I cannot stand drawing flowers. That is just (laughs) not my thing. But I made sure, I said, well, I'm going to find flowers that are grown, say, in the Caribbean or flowers that are grown in West Africa somewhere. Like, that's how I would approach my projects from a Black lens Mm -hmm. every time. Okay. To the point where I remember a dinnerware project I had where I said, okay, we have to design a dinnerware set. Well, I had just come back from Ghana because I wanted to do a study abroad. And I specifically wanted to go to a Black country. I did not want to go to Europe. And I couldn't find a program. And I connected with a nonprofit organization that had trips to Ghana, Senegal, and they had this student exchange program. And I said, that's going to be my study abroad. The year I went, it was in 95, because that was the 25th anniversary of the Ashantahini, who is the king of the Ashanti people in Ghana. They were celebrating the Silver Jubilee. This was like, you know, this does not happen often. 
one person ruling for 25 years. So I had the opportunity to go to the celebration in Kumasi, Ghana, and go to a huge stadium and watch how it filled up one by one. And I even saw how they literally carry the king on a pelican, you know, and around the whole stadium, dressed to the T in his specially handwoven kente cloth and the jewelry and his the whole entourage were all decked out. It was just an amazing experience. And so when I came back, I said, you know, I'm designing my dinnerware for the royal family there. And so, and you see how I would constantly, I use that as an example of how I would constantly connect whatever project I had to the Black diaspora, the Black experience. And were you getting resistance or were people fascinated and and welcoming? Depends on the professor. (laughs) I had some professors who questioned me and I was the type of student. Well, if you're going to question me, then you need to question my colleague who's doing flowers from Europe. Right. Why don't they get questioned too? That's sort of a problem that arts, art schools have been so steeped in the European aesthetic for so long that there are many, you know, scholars and designers mm-hmm. who don't really have a lens or a perspective on aesthetics and references and heritage and culture from other places. And, they, and when they do, Amy, the references are diluted. To yeah. the point where the person who's actually creating is getting the credit and taking ownership of it. And that's part of the problem with our education systems focused specifically on design, because we know the whole system has issues. Mm-hmm. But yeah. since we're you know talking about design and how these sources coming from the indigenous communities around the world, and I'll say indigenous because that is Black Indigenous, that is Native American Indigenous, it's the Indigenous communities who have been creating before any of us, right? But mm-hmm. yet we'll look as look to the communities as the source inspiration for our work, and but we don't lead with that in our conversation when we talk about the, our work. It's always about what we did, what we did, what we did. And I'm constantly in conversation about this, especially with my work. I make sure that I'm leading with my community, my people, and the process, because that is just as important as the final product or the final space or whatever it is that you're creating. I totally agree with you. I feel like that vernacular of attribution, the language of attribution needs to be baked into the way that we talk about our work. Because without it, like you said, it gets diluted and appropriated and confused and uh, mischaracterized throughout history. And because everything's been so European for so long, there's, mm-hmm. you know, it hasn't been necessary to say, well, this is, you know, this has a European origin. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. No, it's fallen away from how we talk about our work. But the problem with that is it opens the door to appropriation in in ways. And I totally agree with you in the, in the same way that storytelling and representation is important in everything. Mm-hmm. I think the language of attribution is really important in how we talk about everything. Yes, it is. Even more so now than ever. More, especially know, with social media, because you put your yes. original work up on social media and people think it's a recipe, like a DIY recipe for them to copy it. And Yeah, it is. And yeah. We're, we're losing as a culture the, the appreciation and the value of original work, original art and creativity. Anyway, I am on a soapbox and this is about... Oh, no, no, no. No, but no, but this is actually the work that in the conversations that I've been having, Amy, it's so important because 
you're on point because the idea of original design, I think we even lost what that is because so many of us are so focused on looking at finished work, Mm -hmm. finished product. We're not thinking about the process at all. You know, I've, I talk to interior designers a lot and I say, you know, one of the things, don't look at someone else's finished space. That just blocks your creativity because right. you're focused in on how can I change what's existing versus investigate processes on how things are made. Because when you come from a perspective of process and materials, then it'll allow you to create that is one of the, the focuses of my practice, you know, Amy, that I really hone in on the processes, the material, and then what kind of message do I want to express mm-hmm. to, to the community? You know, or what, what part of my experience do I want to focus in on? And because then it gives you a full picture of whatever it is that I produce and you'll have a better understanding. And then also my goal is that it'll encourage you to go deeper into the conversation of what I'm doing. So then you as an individual will have a better understanding too. I love that you said that. And it's so true because there is a a warmth and approachability about your work, but it's also like inherently fascinating. And I look at it and I want to know more about your process. And I want to know more about how it came to be your conceptual. We're going to unpack that too. But I agree with you too. And because I was you and I were both trained before social media, we Mm -hmm. had to filter our inspirations, I think through much more of a physical kind of visceral feeling of what that spark feels like physiologically. Like I can feel my heart racing when I stumble upon a a concept and it might be a material like a, like a Mm -hmm. vintage vinyl from that's associated with auto upholstery, but like the mm-hmm. associations of that become a language I can use in a storytelling form in, in terms of form and sculpture. And, and I think that that's what you're talking about too, is when you're working with materials like fiber and clay, you're processing the inspiration in a very physical sense, not just like scrolling through images and deciding what you like visually and then trying to replicate. Yes, Exactly. No, it is. And I think to your point, you know, I think one of the benefits of growing up in the 90s, being in school at that time, we did not have access to all this social media, to your point. And we literally had to go to a community or to a place to experience it. I, and that's why travel has been like a huge factor as far as my process and really helping me to hone in more. It contributes another layer to the work that I'm doing because I'm the type of artist where If I read about something, I want to go from see it for myself. I want to go experience it for myself. I want to get connected to the people who are actually making. So then I also have a better understanding of the process. Well, you've done a fair amount of residencies that sounds like that's kind of your thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, it's it's part of it. I mean, I've done a few and I've created my own. And see, that's the thing, too. When you have a a desire to be with a group of people or uh, with a material and you don't, you may not have access to it in your own environment, or maybe there's not a program, the idea of being curious and creative of making that happen in your life is another layer to the creative process. And so I'm one where I, you know, I do my research and I say, Hey, I want to learn about blah, blah, blah. There must be something out there. And until I'm, I'm relentless until I find it. I'm not going to stop. You still don't miss a day of school, do you? <laughs> no, I know. 
But you see, it's that focus and determination, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the curiosity yeah. of wanting to learn and know. It's interesting that I would hope people would just constantly stay curious because that's the part of the learning. Oh, and, it's, the motor. You know, it's the motor that drives the learning. Yeah. And I am always in that mindset whenever I'm doing and questioning. Mm-hmm. I've been questioning things since college, well, way before college, you know. Since I told but, you not to mix a skin color darker yeah. than a white person. <laughs> you, you know, but you know, and that's the thing, we, we don't question and we just, because again, the conditioning of this society, we've been so conditioned on many levels not to question mm-hmm. and just accept and then figure out how we're going to adapt. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. 
So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Well, listen, I want to get an overview of your professional practice now, because it sounds like you're not just all about the admin, like you're continually feeding your curiosity and learning and traveling. What does your professional practice look like just practically on the day to day? And then, you know, say pre-COVID or after. Well, yeah, (laughs) big difference there. But I mean, I also want to get a sense of like, you're an activist and a speaker, like how the purpose gets woven into the practical considerations. And then even from a spiritual perspective, Three years ago, I decided that I didn't want to focus on textiles or rug design solely. Um, I got to a point in my professional career where I was feeling like my voice wasn't being heard creatively. I was designing, you know, rugs for some big, big projects, well-known brands that most of us would know, you know, from Saks Fifth Avenue, Viacom, Marriott, had some wonderful projects. But I also realized, too, that my creativity was being silenced. And I didn't want that anymore. And I decided to take a sabbatical, Amy. I took two years off. How brave. That's amazing. At the height of my career. You know, I was at the height of the business. But, you know, when your soul is and your gut constantly is speaking to you, you have to listen. Listen, I didn't go to school and study the way I did to become a designer where my ideas were not being executed in the way that I would love them to be. So I said, I'm taking a step back and I want to explore new medium. Long story short, that is how I found clay. By going back to that college course, African-American art history, Mm -hmm. and looking at specifically the women during the Harlem Renaissance period that that I really admired and sculpture kept coming out in that there was this theme of sculpture and I was very interested in potentially sculpting figures. And so I just said, let me just start looking at their journey, their path. Like what did Edmonia Lewis do during her time? And what did Elizabeth Catlett do? And, you know, Lois Malu Jones, Augusta Savage. I just started to go back and they studied at different universities. They had traveled 
And I was at Monia Lewis at the time where it was her journey that captured my attention at that moment. And she had gotten kicked out of Oberlin College. You know, somebody lied to her. And this is like in the 1800s. So you imagine only Black woman, and she's an artist, a sculptor at that. She left and she went to Pietra Santa, Italy, and she studied marble carving there. She was a badass carver and sculptor. And I said, I want to follow in her footsteps because she wasn't able to continue. And I, you know, I believe that our ancestors teach us a lot and it's for us, the next generation to continue to push whatever agendas they had forward. It took me to Italy to go study figure sculpting. So I figured, Hey, if I had guidance, I could create a, a figure that, you know, you were able to connect with. It wasn't about replicating that person exactly. It was about, can I create life out of clay and that what people would be connected to in some way. Mission accomplished. Then it it drove me to, I I had a residency at Greenwich House Pottery in New York City. It was an amazing experience because I had four months to really explore the medium. And I focused on looking at the processes for mud architecture of Mali, Ghana, Burkina Faso, and Nigeria. So again, I looked at those processes and then I implemented them in creating a series of 25 vessels. So that was the next step. And then after that, I realized I'm hooked. This is where I want to be. I want to be with the clay. I want to go take a deeper dive. I signed up for a community space. And then I was really determined to go back to the continent to work alongside women potters. And that brought me to Ghana, West Africa, last summer. Again. So this is the return to Ghana. Yes. I, and I've been to Ghana a few times, okay. actually. Yeah. Yep. A few times. And so now, mind you, this return, I hadn't been to Ghana since 1996. I went back in, in 2019. Of course, there's still lots of memories from my trip from 96. But, you know, 2020 was a different experience because I was actually going to work with the potters. Yeah. And I connected with the women and the women do the work. They do this pottery work and they had a specific technique, which it was hard. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was hard. And, but it was so fascinating to watch them and see how simple a practice can be. There was no table. There's no banding wheel. It's all hand built. And I just loved how they worked with the materials that were around them. Fabric smoothed out the surface of the clay it was an open fire. So, you know, just using, you know, trees and and branches, open fire. That's how they're firing. Pots were very simple, but the technique was very interesting because they start with the top and then they create the bottom, which is not a typical process in hand building. Usually you're starting with the bottom, Mm. but they start with the top. And so I spent, you know, a few weeks with them learning their process, getting to know them. And we became family because on the other part, Amy, As a black woman, one of my ways of connecting with my culture is I constantly think about what if we didn't have the whole Atlantic slave trade, that we were not kidnapped and brought here to the Caribbean, South and Central America. If all of that did not happen, I think about the work that I would be doing. And I feel I would be working in clay and textiles. So I'm constantly channeling that energy back to the processes that we're still practicing to this day. I'm just totally mesmerized. You took me there with you to Ghana with working with the women so close to the earth, so mm-hmm. so significant to you in terms of your heritage. 
I mean, it's a really profound thing to reimagine history without the slave trade as a big part of it. And yes, it's enormous. I don't, yeah. I don't even really know what to say about that, but I, I can feel that that would have been really transcendent to be there working in clay alongside those women in a manner that may have been your original destiny. Yeah. And I was working specifically with the Elway women um, in Cooley Village. And there's just so much that I learned about with them. But then I was also, even though I was working in clay, I was also able to capture the moment through my photography. Uh-huh. That's my other love. And I was able to capture portraits of, you know, women who are 90 years old. And it's not necessarily that they're getting their portrait taken every day, but they asked me to take their portraits. And I was like, yes. And so then everyone wanted to get their portrait taken. I thought that was amazing, you know, opportunity to capture a period in history, period of my life, and then to capture them in, in their natural state. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Especially after somebody who was sort of forced to erase Black people from your early artwork. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, and I'm constantly making sure that, you know, we're represented in, in all aspects of my work. And so then I came back to the U.S. and then I decided, okay, I'm really, I'm, I'm in my moment. This is, this is where I want to be for a long time, Clay. And I realized, Amy, I wanted to take a deeper dive. Deeper even. Into, All right. Yeah, I'm even with deeper. Because <laughs> you ask about what my practice is. Mm-hmm. So, and this is why I have to lead up to, because I go back to my mother and being an educator and how important education is, I decided that I want to go back to school. I want to go to grad school and I want to study the material, and but I also want to do more research, more research around connecting my experience in America to the Caribbean, to West Africa. Mm-hmm. And I decided to, you know, apply for grad school. And lo and behold, this was now, mind you, this is the third time that I've applied for grad school, but I got accepted. I had like five offers. And so come this fall, in a few weeks, I'll be going to Temple University to pursue an MFA in ceramics. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Also another brave move. (laughs) I haven't been in school in 20, what, 26 years now? You've been in school your whole life, don't lie. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm taking the time to think about my work, not just about, again, creating pretty products, I want people to be educated more, even myself, around the processes and understanding what Black design is, Mm -hmm. what does that mean in relation to where we are now. So I want to spend that time to find some answers to it. And it won't be one answer. And that's what I'm really looking forward to is the discovery of how we are continuing to use these materials, keep in line with tradition. And how that and bringing it back to the source. So it's this constant circle of, you know, the black people in America, black people in the Caribbean, black people in in Ghana, and how that thread continues to run through our life and how we express it through our craft, through our design, through our art. You know, I just had this image and and maybe it's not in my head. I always kind of think in graphic metaphors, but the European tradition has this really strong thread, you know, with no, no breaks in it. And the African and many indigenous traditions, especially in American culture, is sort of like a dotted line. And it feels to me like you're going back 
to strengthen those areas of the thread that have gotten frayed. Yes. Yes. So that it's a clear through line and it can continue on. And as you talk about your work, it's a modern interpretation of the black experience. So it's building on the existing Mm -hmm. heritage, not just replicating antiques. That's right. But the purpose of that is to create that clear through line, that clear thread with no no breaks, no no frayed areas where it gets yeah, lost. That's right. Oh, I love that analogy because it's yeah, it's, it's exactly what the work that I'm doing. And there have been so many breaks. It's like if we if we think about weaving, you know, mm-hmm. we we've just had just a very the the thread has been so thin and it's thinned out where it has broken, but. When, when I think about it physically and when I think about it like spiritually, it hasn't been broken. It's just that the world has broken it because what I'm doing is innate to me. You know, yeah. it's it's the work that I'm supposed to be doing. And and now I'm in this position to really mend that that broken piece, the broken pieces, because there are many. Mm-hmm. I want to be that the connector between the tradition, you know, creating the legacy work that I'm doing and the community. Because what's happened is the information has not been dispersed to the community on a mass level. It's there, but it's been few that are continuing to to take, you know, absorb the information and take it in. And they're only able to disperse it at a minimal level because we're not in a society that really embraces those stories and the narrative. Right. And it feels kind of urgent because we don't want to lose those traditions, those practices as the people, the generations die out who know and carry them on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why it's so important for us to document this, Mm -hmm. the information, not just in books, but in video. There's, you know, we just need to develop that archive because when you think about art, design, craft, you know, when, especially when it comes to the black community, it has not been documented to the extent that it should. We need libraries, with this information. And the more libraries that we create with the information, that just also means the more educated people they will be. Yeah, the more like nutrient rich places for people to go f- discover and learn. And yeah. oh, I'm with you. And I think that you, you know, that's all leading to why you founded Black Artists and Designers Guild. Yes. Yep. Which is an amazing resource and a stellar group of artists and makers, but also just in a a really important platform for people to be Mm -hmm. able to discover Black talent. Yes. Can you tell me all about the founding of that and what kind of community you've been able to build and and the successes and challenges that went along with it? During that sabbatical, this is when I was able to take a step back and look at the industry from a different perspective. And I realized the same frustrations that I had back in college, I was still having 26 years later, you know, at the time it was 25, you know, Mm -hmm. and I realized that it's unacceptable and I cannot continue to just voice my opinion around this subject, which I had already been doing, you know, for my entire life and not make it more of a public thing. And so I decided to use the resources that I have and what I knew. I knew social media, I knew website, and I knew people. I knew black people, (laughs) plenty of black, talented people around the world Mm -hmm. because I would constantly connect with them or, you know, whether it was from my travels, whether through social media, you know, I was always connecting. So 
when you have events, you know, within this design industry, especially in this event was in New York where there were no black uh, artists, makers, designers on the panels, you know, within the conversation, I said enough is enough. And I gathered up some of the people I knew, some people I didn't know, but I sent everybody email saying, hey, forming this collective, here's why would you like to join? It's going to be a directory because I personally did not want to hear that the excuse, we can't find any black designers, artists, or makers. And I knew that this same frustration was in my colleagues. They were saying the same thing. So it just, this was not a personal thing. And I feel that when you build a community, you know, it becomes a force. So we launched November, 2018 online and, you know, the information went viral, you know, within the industry, you know, the press was supportive and, you know, we started to do our own events and, really having conversation around what does black design mean culturally working towards writing our own narrative. And then once we got took a deeper dive, we realized, you know, our mission, our mission was, and still is our mission is about creating a more equitable and inclusive creative culture, but also honoring our ancestry practices, honoring our story and working towards writing our own narrative and not the narrative that has been given or fed to us. And so how we do that is through our collaborations within the organization. So currently we have a project that we're working on called um, Obsidian, which is the concept house. It's a virtual concept house Mm -hmm. where we are really focusing on the future dwelling of black family. And what does that look like? Oh, fascinating what happened was during COVID we, you know, everyone's meeting on zoom and we were meeting on zoom and I said, we, it's time for us to work on our own projects and let's come up with the concept of what we could do, you know, and as a collaborative project from that conversation grew the concept house. I said, we, we really need to create space specifically around the black family lifestyle because no one's really thinking about that. And because we have so many layers to our family life, it's multi-generational and it's always been, but why aren't spaces created for that? And then we're also thinking about life after COVID, you know, mm-hmm. creating those spaces for quarantining and, you know, having, you know, um, spaces where it's a cleansing before you walk into the space, things like that too. But then we're also thinking about sustainability. We're thinking about futurism and black cultural processes within the whole scope of this project. We have set the space in Oakland, California, for the year 2025. And then we're also creating a space where we're not thinking about what the nuclear family, the idea around that of what has been fed to us, husband, wife, two kids, but we're thinking about all the multiplicities, whether it's the grandmother with the raising the niece, or if it's the gay couple and maybe they have their in-laws living with them, Mm -hmm. or if it's a single woman and she has no children. So this space will be able to support all of these different lifestyles. We're really looking forward to it. It's going to be amazing. It's going to have its own website and it'll be a virtual experience to launch in 2021, but it'll be finished in 2020 in October. And so that is one of our projects. And then we also have our education fund where we believe in educating three generations of creativity. We have our creative futures, which are our undergrad and graduate students you know, wanting to provide financial um, support during that period and their time. And then we have our visionaries, which are like mid-career, 
where allowing those professionals to have time to develop an idea or participate in a residency. And then our legacy makers, you know, those are our elders who've been practicing their art or design for many years, and they still want to explore ideas. That's what the Guild is about. And what has happened is that we have become this major resource ever since uh, June when uh, the murder, you know, the murder of George Floyd has become very um, public and and it's gone global. And this, this awakening has happened, you know, to be honest, we figured out, we carved a space for ourselves as the Guild to collaborate, to work together, to navigate this industry. And then all of a sudden it was like a tsunami, Amy, that came out at us uh, where, you know, I corporations, that. individuals, you know, wanting to support us. Mm-hmm. To be honest, it was like, wait a second, hold on a minute. Where, what, what, at first, to be honest, I was like, well, what's going on here? Like, what just happened? Because in the Black community, the sad part is the incident that happened with George Floyd happens every day in our community. The sad part is that it took this incident for the, for the rest of the world to wake up to it, for something that's been going on for centuries, which has led into deeper conversations around you know, racism and white supremacy. And now it's being talked about a lot more, even though it's been talked about for centuries. But all of a sudden now... Everyone is like, okay, we need to fix this. We need to fix this. And they are like latching on to, you know, black organizations without really taking the moment for their own personal and internal awareness and then organizationally bringing awareness and then really understanding what the issue is. Because there's been a lot of knee jerk reaction to this situation which is only continuing to contribute to the problem. But on one level, it's good that people are waking up, but now it's a matter of, okay, you're woke, not to the point where this has been resolved because if people believe or think that this is going to happen by sending a few donations or featuring more black artists and designers, they're fooling themselves. This problem is so much deeper and it's going to take a generation, I think, to really get out of it. I think multiple generations, to be honest. But the key is there's willingness now. There's willingness to, to make these impactful changes mm-hmm. that will benefit us even when we're gone. Yeah, I sort of liken it to, and you tell me if this is accurate or off base, but I sort of liken it to like the, the maturation of a human. In our 20s, we, we end up being really focused on our externals, our how we look, how we attract a mate, if we want to lose weight or clear up our skin. And that's sort of the performative aspect of this movement. Like people just realized like, oh, um, we could be a lot prettier if we hired more black people. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. then in your thirties, it's sort of about the push to accomplish. And some people are a little bit further along in terms of their corporate mission to include and have diverse rosters, but it's not necessarily meaningful until you get to your forties and you start to really do the inner work and Mm -hmm. unpack how you got to be the way you are and why you're making these decisions and what your triggers are. And not everybody's in their forties and doing the inner work yet, but I do feel like there is some momentum and, all the exponential energy we can put into that momentum 
will only help things grow and mature faster in terms of working through the performative phase into the accomplishment Mm -hmm. phase and then into the real Mm -hmm. inner work phase. To your point, we need to put that energy there, definitely. I just don't want people to feel that that there's a, um, one thing is there's a competition and that it's going to happen fast. Right. No, that's like asking a tree to grow to be, you know, really tall and strong yeah. in like a year. If, yeah. if we just sort of like staff it with gardeners 24-7 and make sure it always has yeah. water. It's like, no, you still yeah. have to let the tree grow in the way the tree grows. And that there's many layers, there's many layers to this. There's many layers. I do see that it is helping people to, especially the people who have been impressed, and not just black people, but you know, we know there are many communities in the U.S. and around the world that have been oppressed and now continue to be oppressed, but it's giving them the courage to speak up. I mean, I'm seeing employees at the corporations finally sharing their experiences and, you know, that they've held on because, again, fearful of not having a job anymore and, you know, not being supported, not being believed that this actually happened. There's a lot of cleaning up to do, a lot. Mm-hmm. And then I think if people understand that, that there's this issue is so deep, 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 deep. And there's multiple layers to it on both sides. Mm-hmm. Because even as Black people, we've been so conditioned to react in certain ways that we haven't spoken up because fear of not being called on for the project, not being hired, not having a job. I mean, there's so many levels to it. I mean, I just from personal experience, I'm obviously not a black person, but I've been in really toxic relationships where I was, you know, gaslit, let's say. And it's just exhausting to be in a circular argument with someone who just will not let you be right or refuses to see your point. And I mean, I can kind of see how you and black people have been talking about this for so long and it's just been sort of side, you know, swept under the rug or yes. placated. And now I think one one thing that's actually beneficial is what you said, that the, there's an emboldening of being able to speak up about issues. There's a willingness to listen. And then mm-hmm. there's a, a culture now of expecting and, and accountability so that it's no longer okay to, to brush it under the rug the way it used to be. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And especially in, you know, being in design, you know how it's not a transparent industry and it's starting to, to your point, they are, the doors are starting to be open and we really do need to know like how this industry works because it has been very closed. There's so many layers like from the features to the lists, to the contests to how are deals made, all of these things. Mm-hmm. The transparency needs to be there. And once, say, individuals, organizations, companies, brands, however you want to call it, become transparent, then they have to be held accountable. Mm-hmm. And so until more of that happens, then we could really work to change a new narrative. Because if we don't know what you've been doing and how you've been doing it, how are we going to even move forward? But what I'm, I am starting to see that companies are starting to come forward and say certain things and do certain things. And it's like, okay, but like with everything else, Amy, to be honest, we just have to wait and see yeah. with a lot of this. And because the things that are like the knee jerk reaction, we're going to see how they pan out, you know, because there wasn't a lot of thought behind it. It was just like, okay, we got to do something. But that may have not been the right thing, but we will see because time will always tell. 
Time will tell. It will. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I I definitely want to unpack the creative process. You've told us a lot about your process and materiality, but what about the process of activism? Oh, process of activism. It's always been in, it's always been in me. <laughs> no, I know, but there's a creative process there too. I mean, because I think a lot of people, you know, there's a stereotype of an activist of somebody who's just sort of angry a little bit all the time, carrying a sign uh, and standing on a soapbox. I think activism is a lot of storytelling and helping, yeah. helping to inform and entertain people changes their minds. And I kind of see through your work, but you're also just your very being by creating yes. the Black Artists and Designers Guild by going mm-hmm. back to school. It, it, it all feels like activism to me, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, yes, sure. We can't, we can't buy into the stereotype of what activism is because it does come in many forms. And I think that's what people fail to see when we think about that word, to your point, they just think, oh, you should be marching in the streets, having your sign, right? That's just one form. But activism is really bringing the community together. Mm-hmm. The overall arching action behind it is how are we bringing the community together? And we have a message of why we need to do that. And then we show how we are executing that. But I'm a visual person. I'm a visual learner. And I have always been that way. So when you ask about the creative activism, the guild is one element of Mm -hmm. it. My work is another element of it. When I'm speaking, that's another part of it. So putting all of that stuff together is my activism. You know, I believe that there has to be an element in your life where you give back. My mother always taught me that. There has to be some. And that's part of activism, too. And I look at the guild as, as, as my give back. And there's more to come with it because I want to be able to provide visibility opportunities for our members and the community. Because when we provide for the members, it's helping the community Mm -hmm. because that next generation who wants to be in the creative world, finally, they're going to see a collective, a group of people that look like them and have shared experiences. And they could see design is a viable career or art is a viable career or being a maker is a viable career. I didn't have that when I was in school. And so I want to be able to make sure that, you know, my generation, that we create that. So there's no more question about, you know, whether you could be an artist as one and even whether you could be an activist because activism is about taking action. And I think we all have that ability to take action Mm -hmm. and be involved in our community in some way. You get to define or decide what that will look like for you, but don't think that, oh, because you're not marching in the street, that that's the only way you could be an activist. It's not. There's multiple ways. I hear you yeah. saying this, and this is, this is all you strengthening those frayed areas of the thread or the, or the fabric. You're headed, yeah. you're taking your energy and your, your purpose and your values, and you're going straight to the areas that need strengthening, and you're building there. I, I sort of yeah. feel like that's, that's my style, too. I decide what side I'm on, and then I build, I build something. Yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And I'm constantly thinking about... How could I be like, even with the industry, I, you know, I said, how could I be a better service 
to a, a community and looking at the design community, how could it be a better service? And I've been, again, during my sabbatical, I'm able to see the, the gaps. I'm like, guess what? We don't connect with the scholars in this industry to have these conversations about, you know, what is modern design? How was it, you know, how was it created? Where are the black people during this conversation? You know, what type of work is considered blah, blah, blah? Like, who does, who came up with these words? Traditional design, transitional, you know, like questioning all of that, you know? <laughs> Primitive. And so, right? And so I, I thought to myself, well, you know, I really enjoy research. You know, I really am big on that process as we've had this, you know, in our conversation. And so how do I put all that together for the next phase of my life? I'm going to be 50 years old in two years. And I'm thinking about life from a different perspective. The work I'm doing is legacy. And I know that the legacy that I want to lead. And so every day I think about how am I adding to that so it could impact the community and be of service. Because there will be a time when I will not be here. And so I just want to know that the work that I've left behind and that just impacted me and my family, my inner circle, but the community, that they all get to experience something from it and that they're benefiting from the work that me and my generation and the community are doing now. That is so powerful. But I got sad when you said there's a time that you won't be here. <laughs> I don't want to fast forward to that time. I know. I, I am not trying to fast forward to it. No. I'm not. It's interesting because especially, you know, as we get older, we face death more often now, you know, and it does, it does get you thinking about it in a, from a different perspective. I always tell my friends, I wish we talk about it more so it won't be so hard for us to deal with. Believe me, I have my moments too, but I do understand that that's one thing we can't control. We cannot control it. We don't know when it's going to happen, but that's why it's so important for us as individuals, as a community, to take each day as an opportunity to do good, be respectful, and embrace what it is you have and, the, and what we have in other people. And so how do you do that? And that's so the constant question and, and be of service. How do you do that? If you're creative, how are you using your work as a tool to benefit the community? If you're a strategic planner, how are you using those services to help a community? Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, we all have that ability and just understand that the work you're doing is it really is the legacy work. And just how do you want that legacy to be be told? Yeah, I think about the objects that are passed down from history and Mm -hmm. they are vessels of meaning. They are artifacts of stories of lives lived and they are a means for us to understand ourselves mm-hmm. by learning about our ancestors. And yeah, I absolutely believe that the objects, the products and the produce of this generation is traveling hopefully towards a more meaningful end of the spectrum away from just sort of rampant consumerism and disposable yes. things. Because yes. I know personally, I don't, when I surround myself with disposable objects, my life feels less meaningful. And mm-hmm. I only want things that I know the story that I can say, this was made by my friend, Melanie Barnett, you know, and here's what her yeah. inspiration was. And this is why this object is so precious to me. Or plates that were handed down from my grandmother. And they're yes. not precious, but they have a story, you know, and they have, I have a connection yes. to them. 
And mm-hmm. I feel very, very strongly the nature of your work is so much about being able to transfer that meaning through the generations. And it's not ego driven. And yet you've got to have confidence to be such a trailblazer <laughs> that you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you ha- when you're doing this type of work, Amy, you know, you really can't think about, oh, am I doing the work because I want to get paid? <laughs> yeah. Seriously, you know, that is, you know, a big equation, especially when we're dealing with capitalism to the utmost, you know, mm-hmm. like the purpose of the work, you have to decide. And I, and I made a decision, you know, when I took that sabbatical, that what is important to me, it's, it's not focused on the business. It is focused on the legacy work. And that's what's important to me. Have you found that with your focus off of making money, the money has come anyway? It has. Yeah. Yeah. It has. That's what I wanted to hear. (laughs) No, no, it has. It has. And listen, we don't talk about, of course, the business of art and all of that. Mm -hmm. And of course I do have to live. It's not like, it's not as if I don't have bills to pay. Mm -hmm. Of course I do, but I've also had to set up other channels of um, income so I can be in a position to focus on the work not rely on income from the legacy work that I'm doing because that distracts from the creativity. So if I had to make a vessel to sell, to pay my bills, that is where the distraction comes in. Yeah. And this is not just for artists, but for anybody, you know, as an individual, we have to have those multiple streams of income. And so I knew that I had needed to set that up. And I had been doing that prior to like taking my sabbatical. So I could really hone in and focus on the work that I'm doing. I do think there's also, it's sort of a counterintuitive, especially in this capitalist society, a counterintuitive idea that when you're not focusing on making money, you're making better work. And that is getting noticed and people are seeking you out and you end up making money because you're making better work. Even if they're not buying your new stuff because it needs time to become understood. It, it's still drawing energy towards you. It's more of, a, I guess, a, an abundance kind of thinking than a scarcity mindset, which is, yes. I just need to make money and my greatest hits are the only thing that are pulling in money. So I better make more of those. But then you end up carving this deeper rut for yourself where that's all you're known for. And when that's out of, yeah. out of style, got nothing. Yes. And your soul yes. is depleted and you're exhausted and you wonder what it's all for. <laughs> yes, yes. Because, I mean, when we think about it, Amy, let's be realistic. How much more work or product objects do we need? We really don't, right? No, we need better ones. And we need culturally to understand that it's not about designing them so that they break and you buy a new one. It's about passing them down from generation to generation. And that's what I was going to get to. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Like when you think about the purpose of why you're making versus, oh, I need to make a new collection because the industry has taught me we got to make a new collection every year. You know, you get caught up in that. I've been there Mm -hmm. versus what is the purpose? What is how is this adding to the legacy? How is this going to impact the community? You're coming from a totally different mindset with, with your creativity and you will make less. And guess what, too? What I've learned, too, Amy, is that everything is not for sale. Tell me about that. 
Yeah, everything I make is not for sale. And I think that's the, the conditioning that we have. People see things and like, oh, are you selling it? Are you selling it? How much? Everything's not for sale. I mean, your work is a offering of your soul. Mm-hmm. And some of that doesn't have a price. It's still part of yeah. you. It's still part of your being. Yes. Um, it needs to yes. stay in your community, in your family, and be part yeah. of your personal legacy. And, and or displayed um, publicly, you know, so more people can experience it, but not necessarily having to be on the track of, oh, it's for sale at blah, blah, blah. You right. know, there's, there's different ways. And I'm not saying that, you know, selling work, selling work is a great thing, but also have to remember too. And this is something I have to say to myself that just because somebody asked how much, it doesn't mean you have to sell it. Before we wrap up, you get interviewed a lot and there's a lot going on in your life and in the world. And I wonder if there's anything that, that you want to talk about that we haven't talked about yet or that you don't normally get to share. Oh boy, Amy, you're making me think right now. Um, this has been something that I've always been thinking about as far as the industry. And I've been dreaming of classes, classes that would be those classes that I've always wanted to have at, at um, in art school. So I would always study West African textiles, whether it was kente cloth, mud cloth, adore cloth, and the processes. And I, I think about how can we decolonize education? And one of the ways is by incorporating courses like handmade textiles from Nigeria. I'm just making it up. It would be a dream to have those classes or weaving from the Mayans, mm -hmm. you know, something like that. And I was listening, I've been listening to a lot of different podcasts about this, this subject. And, you know, it just got me like, oh, that would be so amazing. And how different those creators would be coming out of a program like that, even for someone like ourselves who've been out of school for so long to go back and experience those type of courses I see it coming. And I'll tell you this, Amy, I'm sure that one day I'll create something like that. I know you because I, I you, and nobody would be surprised, but I feel that coming. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I constantly am thinking about what's the next business that I would like to create. And it's around space. And I know it's going to be around space, around creating those courses. Because sometimes what I've learned, and this is part of activism, you can't wait for an institution, a company, or an organization to do something. You have to go out and do it yourself. And once you build it, people will come. I know in the future, the future is just about, it's just uh, the tech technicality, <laughs> you know, the next five years, the next few years, which is not a long time from now. Mm -mm. But I do see myself creating those spaces for people to learn about the arts and crafts of the Black diaspora. Where that space will be, I'm not sure yet, but wherever it is, I know you will come, Amy, and the whole rest of the world is going to be a space where they're all going to want to come to and learn and just be. I've just been really thinking about that. This next step of going back to school is really going to help me get closer to that goal. I have goosebumps and I'm already there. I'm signing up. <laughs> Sign. I want to sign. I want to sign myself up, and I can't yet. I know you have to build it. <laughs> it's so exhausting, but it's so meaningful. 
<laughs> so, but yeah. <laughs> so is there a project, you know, with your own work or with Black Artists and Designers Guild or something that you'd like our listeners to keep an eye out for, follow up on, check into, support? Well, I would say our main project is the concept house. Yeah, I'm you know, so excited about we, that. that is like major, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're, you know, there's opportunities for sponsorship. We were going to start to really market it um, in the next few months, but definitely that's something to look out for, for the guild. Plus there are going to be some other collaborations that I can't talk about just yet, but just stay tuned. There will be um, product collaborations with the guild as well. And then I'd say, for me personally, I, I right now I have two ceramic shows going on right now. One is at Greenwich House Pottery. The other is at the Clay Studio in Philadelphia. And I say, just keep on a lookout. There are going to be a lot more gallery shows and a lot more opportunities for me to show my work publicly. And I'm really excited about where that's going to take me. I'm excited too. Thank you for taking us all the places you, you just took us. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To see images of Mulaney's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would do us a favor and rate and review, it really does help us a lot. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Laura Jaramillo, and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.